0: Uh, what a great morning. We've already had a time of worship. And uh, here we're going to jump into this new series. And we're going to talk today about loving ourselves and how that informs how we love other people. Now, immediately, my mind went to a portion of scripture where Jesus is confronted by an expert in the law. And he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And God, Jesus responds, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. And in my modern mindset, I think, ah, oh, there's the key to loving people, self-love. In fact, in my modern mindset, I even want to take it a little further, uh, that we can only love others to the degree that we love ourselves. Now that, that sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds like a Hallmark card, like some pop psych type book you get at chapters or something. You can only love others to the degree that you love yourself. But we know that's not really logical and that can't be true. That can't be what Jesus meant because especially on a weekend like this, Mother's Day, we know that moms in particular, um, moms love their kids. I've never, I don't know if I've ever met a mom that loved themselves more than they love their children. And if, they, if there was ever a mom like that, we know there's something broken there because moms love their children to the detriment of their own health and welfare. They will go for, without in order for their children to, ha, to, to have. We love this about moms. Moms truly love their neighbors more than they love themselves. So we, we can see that that can't be what Jesus was driving at, that we can only love others to the degree that we love ourselves because some of us, don't love ourselves very much, but we spend a lot of time loving other people. But Jesus, this is a very important point though. It may not mean that, but Jesus is driving at something really critical and it has to do with the way we love ourselves. See, the barrier to loving people is often found in the way we love ourselves, in the way we love ourselves. So we're going to explore what it means to love ourselves and how that informs how we can better love people but it starts with a bit of an, an acknowledgement. And the acknowledgement is simply this. All of us have trouble loving ourselves. Everyone does. Why? Because there's a piece in you and in me, that, a piece that is fragile and overactive. It's your ego. And our ego is working over time over time, trying to fill the brokenness and the voids and the and, and those little uh, d- deficit areas in our life. And sometimes it works so hard, it becomes overinflated. Have <laughs> you ever meet, met anyone with an overinflated ego? if You know what they say, if you haven't met someone with that, you might be that person, right? Well, a person with an overinflated ego, what happens over time is they develop a superiority complex. And this impacts the way we love people. If we don't have a healthy understanding of self-love in us, we can't, we can't love people in a healthy way. And when you have a superiority complex, you can't love people in a healthy way. See, when you're in a relationship with someone, if you think you're superior, then what you give is charity. It's not really love. It's not this so you you we can be better at things than people in certain areas of our life, but we're not better than people and the problem with this uh inflated ego is it causes us to use people people with an inflated ego use ego, use people, how do they use people? well they use people to get the praise and the adulation that their ego so desperately needs. They Needs, not want, but needs. And they, they, they use people to get that. They thrive on that. And people with egos that are inflated, they're actually really fragile people. Now, we don't see them as that. We see them as strong and confident. We see a haughty, proud person, we go, there's a, there's a guy, there's a, there's a woman who's got it all together and they look like they, they're winning at life. But below, below that veneer is actually a great vulnerability, a great fragility. Why? Well, because it's easy to control someone with an inflated ego. You can, just con- you can control anyone with an inflated ego by pulling on one of the levers. You can pull on the flattery lever or the praise lever. And they're going to love you. They're going to give you what you want because you are giving them what they need, the drug they need to keep their ego inflated. You can also control a person with an inflated ego by pulling on the ridicule. If you ridicule them, they feel disrespected in some way, they're coming at you. Why? Because you're letting the air out of that ego balloon in their life. And it's painful to them. Now, in ancient cultures, in traditional ancient cultures, like the one Jesus uh, was raised in, they saw that all of society's ills was actually tied to this idea that people having too high of a view of themselves, an overestimation of themselves. And so in those ancient cultures, they thought all of society's ills and problems, why do people do bad things? Why are people cruel? It's because of hubris. And that's what the ancient term would have been, hubris. Uh, Aristotle used that term. And the idea was around this, we don't use it often in modern language, but that's the root of what ancients saw as a problem to society's ills. It's an excessive pride. It's having too high of a view of yourself. That was hubris. And it's interesting, tied to the word hubris was the word arrogance. In the Latin, arrogance means to demand or seize. And, And what it does it speak to an aggression around the way that we operate with an inflated ego? An inflated ego demands, seizes recognition. It wants to be noticed. It wants you to notice its good looks or its money or its power or even in spiritual contests, its godliness. There's a hubris around it, and arrogance makes us aggressive. There's an aggression to we need to take something to keep that balloon full. But that's not the only danger when it comes to our our ego and how we navigate life. There's also the danger of a deflated ego. And this can happen many ways in life. It can happen early in our life. It can be someone... Burst our bubble by speaking just negative or hurtful or even hateful words into us, or maybe damaging life circumstances that we begin to experience in this life, and they damage us. And this leads to an inferiority complex. And again, it's hard to love people in a healthy way if we feel so demeaned and small in our own lives. Actually, the Bible would show us that both the overinflated and the deflated deflated ego have the same root problem. You know, both of them use people. They use people. It's not a love that gives, it's a love that seeks to get. One comes from, they both come from places of brokenness, they just look very different one from the other. You see, a deflated ego, you're looking for self-worth from people. You're looking to people to get that sense that you matter in this life. Because again, maybe some of the hurtful or negative things spoken over your life, you're looking for people to speak other words over your life, words of affirmation and goodness. But have you ever noticed? They can never say enough good ones to repair the damage of the hurtful ones. I mean, for every seven compliments, one criticism deflates us. Because why? Our ego is so fragile and broken in that moment. We're looking for people to heal us from the damaging experiences we've had in life. And why that becomes so dangerous? And it leads to the same problem. An inflated ego is a very fragile person, a deflated ego, a very fragile person. Why? Because when we have a deflated ego, it's almost like I like to imagine we all have an imaginary security button that gets pressed and it makes us feel secure and that we matter and we're worthwhile. And often when we have a deflated ego, we start passing that button around and we give it to imperfect people. And they may love us, but there's no, they can't possibly press it enough to fill the void that's in our life or to fix the things that might be broken in our life. And so consequently, we get into a vicious cycle of needing people to pump our tires while they simultaneously are letting the air out of our tires. It's a a crazy cycle we find ourselves in. Now, what's different than the ancient culture? In modern culture, we don't think the problem is people having too high of a view of themselves. We think society's ills are tied to the problem of people having too low of a view of themselves. They're too insecure. And that leads to all the bad behavior and brokenness we see in this world. Obviously, they're really insecure people. That's why they act out this way. So which is it? Who's right? The ancients? That the problem in this world is people with too high of an estimation of themselves? Too high self-esteem? Or is it in the moderns? Where we feel like really the problem in life is people with too low of a self-esteem. Well, the Bible would say Both both are problems. In fact, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is an amazing passage of scripture. And I'll tell you why. It gives us a picture of the Apostle Paul's relationship with his own ego. <laughs> I love this. This is fantastic. And friends, if you track with me for a few minutes, it doesn't matter if you're following Jesus or you don't know Jesus, I can tell you that some of the truth you'll hear in these next few moments, it's going to be so freeing for you. And especially as we pray in the end, I'm going to be give you an opportunity to follow Jesus. Let me give you the context before I jump into the gold, some of these verses. In, in this book, 1 Corinthians, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church he planted. He planted this church in the beginning. And in it, there's a problem going on in the church. There's a lot of fighting happening. And it's between people comparing and boasting about the leaders of the church. You see, they've had three significant leaders over the lifetime of this church so far. Paul planted it. There was a man named Apollos who was known as a great orator, a great speaker. He's the guy that would have been download, downloading the podcast and kind of binging on them all week. And then, and then there, the, the last one was the Apostle Peter. He had made a tour through and visited this, this church. And of course, the Apostle Peter, I mean, he's the OG. He had walked with Jesus. It'd be kind of like in our modern time. It'd be kind of like One Church TO comparing the lead pastors that they've had over the years. You know, some people kind of flexing on the longevity that they've been around for a long time. They were around in the Stuart Mulligan days. And they'd be like, listen, I, I, you know, this man knew how to run a church. He is the OG. He is the OG. This is the guy. This is the pastor. This is the man when One Church TO was homin'. And others would be like, whoa, 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 I wasn't around during the Mulligan days. Keith Smith, he's the GOAT. I I said this in the first service, and I got a text message from Pastor Keith saying, "What's, what's GOAT mean? It means the greatest of all time. It's an acronym, so I'm just letting anyone else know about this, but... But they would say, oh, no, 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 no! he's the goat. I mean, he passed led lead pastor for 23 years, led this church through so much, uh, to, kept the unity of this church as a focus, great Bible teacher, fantastic. And then others would say, well, the guy on the end, you know, to be honest with you, he's the most consistent of all these men when it comes to his haircut. It's always on point. You know, I mean, have you seen Pastor Keith's COVID hair? I mean, Pastor Keith, if you're watching in this gathering, you know I've made the offer. I'm prepared to help you uh, find a better haircut. uh, One just like mine. So people are playing this game of comparisons between leaders. And you know, Paul's having none of it. And this is what makes Paul in this conversation quite unique. Paul doesn't fall into this praise-criticism thing. See, this is how people try to control situations even. They do it with praise and criticism. Praise, if Paul had a fragile ego, praise would have been pumping his tires and he would have been predisposed to want to side with one group. If criticism, if he, was, he had a deflated ego and criticism's coming at him and the airs being let out of his ego, he could easily be controlled by that group. But neither group defines the response of Paul here. In fact, we see how he responds in verse six. He says this, if you pay attention to what I've quoted from the scriptures, you won't be, can you say this word out loud with me? You won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of another. In other words, you won't be playing a comparing game. You ever seen this? Sometimes it sadly even happens in families. You'll hear someone, one of the parents say, why can't you be more like your sister? Because she isn't her. We're all different. We all have different strengths. We all have different weaknesses. We're all wired differently. And sometimes we all behave a little differently. And sometimes some people are, behave better. And sometimes it's because they feel guilt and fear easier. Other people uh, behave maybe not as good. And it's because maybe they don't feel enough. I don't know how that works fully. But, uh, but he's saying you won't be comparing. Now, why I share this verse is because of this word proud. Pride. The, the Bible, in this portion of the Bible, was originally written in the Greek language, and this is a very unique word. It's only used by the Apostle Paul in the entire Bible. There's many words for pride in, in the Greek language. This one is very unique, though, that he uses here. It's used six times in First Corinthians, and it's only used one other place in the Bible by the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians. This word pride actually means to be Overinflated, swollen beyond its proper size, ready to burst. It's this kind of idea of a dystemic stomach ready to burst. In other words, in pain. And this is Paul's point when it comes to pride. The human ego is in pain. Have you ever noticed that in your body? You never notice your body unless it's in pain, right? I didn't show up today and say, hey, My neck feels good today. That would only make sense if my neck hadn't been feeling good. you only notice your body when something's not right with it. And the Bible would say, and Paul would say, and Jesus is saying, there is something dreadfully wrong with our egos. And our egos are constantly shouting to be noticed. Your ego matters. It matters how you look. And that's why it matters how you look how you're treated, and if you feel disrespected. When people say that their feelings are hurt, hurt, most often, really, it's their ego that has been wounded. And it's damaging. And this damaged ego causes us to live a life where we're constantly comparing or boasting. We're just in a place of comparison or boasting. It's that, that back and forth that happens in our life where we compare ourselves. If we're deflated, we compare ourselves to others and it makes us feel worse. If we're inflated, we're always boasting. Why? To try to maintain a sense of superiority. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this beautifully in his book, Mere Christianity, in a chapter on pride, he said this. Pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. He's so insightful. He says this. You may think you're proud of being successful or intelligent or good-looking, but you really aren't. You're only proud of being more successful, more intelligent, more good-looking than other people. And when you are in the presence of people who are much more successful, intelligent, or good-looking than you are, you lose all pleasure in what you have because you really had no pleasure in it. You had pleasure in having more of it. Boom. Boom. Friends, many of us, and this is what he's driving at, we're busy creating an ego-driven resume, trying to backfill the deficits that are in our own lives. And we do it through comparing and boasting and comparing and boasting. And it's hard to love people the way God would have us love people if we don't have a healthy love and equilibrium in our own lives. So where do we find that? How do we get there? Well, here's the beautiful verses. Verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 gives us the insight. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, as for me, it matters little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. I mean, Paul is saying something incredible here and pretty significant, sorry. Evaluate it, the word actually means verdict. And Paul is saying, listen, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what anyone thinks about me. uh, My worth is not tied to your verdict of my life. I'm not determining my value based on your verdict for my life. Not even human authorities. And there's a part of us that goes, good on you, Paul. You know, you don't have a low self-esteem. Good on you. And then maybe even further, there's some of us and maybe even counselors that might say, listen, it doesn't matter what they think. It only matters what you think. As Paul goes on to say, actually, I don't even trust my own judgment. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. In other words, I don't care what you think and I don't care what I think. (laughs) I, I have a low opinion of your opinion of me and I have a low opinion of my opinion of me. What an incredible place of freedom. How does Paul even get there? He doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care what they think. He doesn't even care what he thinks. So who does he care about? Verse four, he says this, my conscience is clear, but that does not prove I'm right. Park that word in your memory. We're gonna come to it in a second. It is the Lord himself who examine me and decide. In other words, I don't care about your opinion of me or even my opinion of me but I care a lot about God's opinion of me. What he says of me matters most. And he says this, my conscience is clear, but that does not prove I'm right. You know what's interesting about Paul? When you read his writings, there's a humility about him that allows him to kind of, if I was going to coin a term, I'd say, get over himself. There's a humility about him that allows him to get over himself so he can get on to what God has for not only himself, but others. In fact, in one of his writings to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, we get a little picture of, of how he sees himself. He said this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. <laughs> now, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for some time, listen to what Paul's saying here. Notice he says it present tense not past. It's so much easier to say I was the worst. It's really hard to say presently I'm the worst of them all. Now how, where did Paul get all this confidence? Where did he get all this security that you see in him in the gospel in the in the New Testament narrative? Such poise under pressure, such strength and confidence. If in one hand He's saying, I'm the worst of them all. How can he live that way? Well, friends, hang on for two more minutes because this is gonna set so many people free. It doesn't matter where you are in the spiritual continuum. I think if you grab hold of this truth and you access this in Jesus, I know you can know a level of freedom from that ego being inflated or deflated and allow you to become to a place of freedom. You see, for Paul, he's not judging himself. That's key. He's not judging himself. He isn't connecting his sins and his failings to his identity. He's not connecting all of those failings and sins in his life to his identity. He's not falling into the, that trap. He's not playing that game we all play. That game that if I if I do bad things, I'm a bad person, or if I do good things, I'm a good person. He's not kind of trapped into that game. He's not falling into that game. He doesn't he refuses to play that performance game. Paul doesn't care what you think about him. He doesn't care what you think about him. Because, and he doesn't care what he thinks about himself. He's come to a place that I, I love Dr. Timothy Keller kind of coined this term, and he wrote a great book on it called Self Forgetfulness. He comes to a place of self-forgetfulness. In fact, I like how Tim Keller puts it. He says, he came to the place of the blessed rest of self-forgetfulness. This sounds so churchy, but I love it. Blessed rest. How many of your friends could use a little blessed rest? Where your mind is not so hyperactive busy trying to determine who, what people think of you, what this person thinks of you, or ruminating on what you think of you and re- replaying past failures and past, past brokenness in your life. How could you come to a place of self-forgetfulness, this blessed place? Well, we fill ourselves up with all kinds of identity markers based on other people's opinions. And Paul has experienced a different type of filling. He's been filled up with God's spirit, with Jesus. And then that has set him free. Remember he said, my conscience my conscience uh, is clear, but that doesn't prove that I'm right. Remember that verse? The word right, and I told you remember it, means justified, justified. And the fact is, we're all looking for this verdict in our life. We're all looking to be justified. We're all looking to know that we matter in this life, that we have worth, that we have value. And every day we go into the courtroom of public opinion, whether it's at school, whether it's at home in our neighborhood or at work, we go into the courtroom of public opinion and we're trying to prove that we matter in life, that we have value in life, that we we make a difference in life. And sometimes we're winning at it and our ego begins to inflate. And sometimes we're clearly losing at that battle and our ego begins to deflate. And what Paul is saying here, is amazing. He's saying this. I'm no longer on trial. I am no longer on trial. It's over. Why? Because the ultimate verdict for my life has already been settled. See, this is what makes the gospel so powerful. See, in Jesus, we get this in Jesus, we have our perform we have a verdict before our performance. In life, We have a performance before our verdict. See, in life, you know this. This is why life beats up on us so much. We perform, and then we get a verdict. You know, parents, you got to be careful with this. Sometimes we're guilty of that. We perform, and our children perform, and then we give them a verdict. Oh, you're a good boy, and we attach our behavior to our identity. But Jesus does the opposite. Jesus gives us a verdict. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, he comes alongside you and he says, this is my my servant, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. He has a verdict over your life. Have you placed your trust in him? And that informs the way we perform in this life because we are now, now we're not driven by our ego being deflated and inflated. We are now driven from a place of a verdict that already says that God is pleased and loves us. And in Romans chapter eight, Paul says it, that now there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The verdict is settled there's no proving ground anymore. The verdict has been settled because Jesus has proven. Jesus has performed and we get his performance as our record. You see, friends, we all need to know we are valued and we matter in this life. And God demonstrated how much he valued you by sending his one and only son, Jesus. You are more precious Than all of the precious metals and jewels in this world, whether below ground or above ground. You are more precious. And Jesus not only loves you, he pursues you and wants to know you. And it's in a relationship with him that we find a peace inside of us that allows us to get over ourselves. It allows us to move into a place of self-forgetfulness. Now, self-forgetfulness doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself. Remember I said, you only notice your body when something's wrong. Self-forgetfulness is a place where you are taking good care of yourself. Physically, mentally, socially, emotionally, and especially spiritually. Because the healthier you are, the more you stop thinking about you. And the more you can serve others and love others. So in conclusion, in just a moment in the chat room, there's gonna be a little button there that says, I chose to follow Jesus. And I'm hoping many of you will click that as you pray with me, because I'm hoping that many of you maybe are listening in, you're saying, listen, Jonathan, I want that, I need that in my life. And you're telling me I find this in a relationship with God, with Jesus. And that's exactly what I'm telling you. And I'm gonna invite you with a simple prayer. You can join me. And you can know what it means to follow Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. He makes all the difference in our lives. Thank you that we get his record. And God, he took on our record. Lord, that that we can receive forgiveness for everything we've done. And we can know what it means to be filled with Jesus in this moment. So I invite you to pray with me, friends. Jesus. Thank you for coming to look for me. Thank you for valuing me and reminding me that I matter. I ask you to forgive me of all the things that I've done that have harmed myself, that has hurt other people, or put a barrier between you and me. I want to be in relationship with you, Jesus, to know you. And I would ask that you would fill the broken areas of my life, all of those voids in my life with your presence. So I can come to a place of self-forgetfulness. And now I can be focused on you and other people knowing that you have that security button in your hands and you are pressing that and reminding me that I am, you, are, you love me, you value me, and you're pleased with me. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Amen.